This is the Cameron Journal Podcast. It's a place where we talk about important things. It's a place where we bring a little slice of the news to you. And it's a place where we do important things, have important conversations. It's also things that I like to talk about. My name is Cameron Cowan, and this is the Cameron Journal Podcast. is cut off. There we go. That's much better. Hello, everyone. My name is Cameron Cowan. Welcome to the Cameron Journal News Hour, the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by and listening. It has been a crazy day here. I had a podcast recording earlier with a lady who wrote a book about uh, why women should own guns for self-defense purposes and all this type of thing. Um, and it was a really good, it was a really good interview, a lot of fun, um, she was great, and, uh, yeah, and it's been a busy, a busy afternoon taking care of stuff and making things happen, and, um, I wanted to let everybody know on a programming note side, and I will post this to social media as well, um, I am leaving the Seattle area at the end of August, and we'll be moving back to the East Coast. And um, that means we're going to be missing a few weeks of the Cameron Joel News Hour as I move and get the studio reset up and, and all this type of thing. Um, so my last um, show before the break will be um, August the 14th. Um, and that will be our, our last show. And we'll be taking a break probably until late September. My guess is probably around the 25th. Now, long-time listeners know I usually will take long a long break in the summer at some point. Um, in fact, in, in 2021, it was kind of fun. Um, I took off significant time in 2021. Um, and actually traffic grew that year. Um, we weren't doing, I wasn't doing as much video back then, but, um, traffic actually grew in 2021. I, I was really only working for about six months of that year. Um, and so, uh, so that was, uh, that was, that's a thing that I do. And so this year, um, I haven't really taken a break this summer except for a week here, a week there when I wasn't feeling well and all this type of thing. So this will be my long break um, for the summer and will give me a chance to move and and all this type of thing. And so um, so that that's something to bear to bear in mind. Um, like I said, I'll be posting this to social media as well, but um, getting that programming note in your brain now will help. On the bright side though, while I am gone, um, there will be interviews, um, scheduled each week the entire time to watch. I also am, go- I also usually once a year will do a special 
series of episodes um dedicated uh to a special subject usually i do a gaggle of random subjects of stuff that i always want to talk about or tell stories or all this type of thing this year i'm doing a six episode um series with my friend brady who's a seamstress and we're doing all things fashion so we're talking about the history of fashion fashion through time um functionality tailoring style all this type of thing so if um she's already been on the podcast talking about fashion and that was a really popular episode so we're gonna do a whole series um a whole series on with that and of that which is really uh which is really cool so um that's uh that's that's a lot of a lot of fun um so that's that will be what will keep you going while while I'm gone, um, I'm gonna to, in fact, we were just working on it last night and we're scheduling recording dates and I'm getting all this together. And so um, usually I do really produced episodes where I pull in a lot of audio and kind of tell an audio story. We're not going to do as much of that this time. Um, um, it's going to be a lot more uh, conversation between her and I talking about fashion and style and all this type of thing. Um, there's also going to be some exciting crossover. Um, we're doing a, a, a video that will be airing in late August um, with PlankSip.org about iconic fashion and culture as part of their cultural journalism series. And so um, that there's going to be some great kind of meshing of, of that um, as well. So that will keep you guys busy while I am... Uh, taking a break and getting moved and getting settled in and all this type of thing. Moving is always such a huge ordeal and a cross country move is an even bigger ordeal. So, um, I have to take a lot of stuff with me to keep functional, um, until all of my stuff arrives from the West coast. Um, so it's, it's all, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. Um, I've already done this type of move once in the other direction. So, uh, I'm, I'm, I kind of know the drill this time, um, which is really, really good and very handy and all this type of thing. Ooh, I got an itch. So, um, that's kind of what's going on logistically on, on that end. So, um, mark your calendars for that. And like I said, the fashion, um, the fashion series is going to be a lot of fun. Um, that's something that I've always kind of thought about doing but never really had a a venue or an idea as to what I could do with it how it would work all this type of thing but with Brady in and us having the cross promotion with plank sip um there's we're we're gonna do it it's gonna be a lot of a lot of fun so uh yeah this week on the Cameron Journal we have a lot of really cool um a lot of really cool a lot of really cool stuff um, we just had, um, some kind of exciting new articles. Um, I haven't talked about this one a lot, but I did a really good article on Russia. Um, and that one, um, is, has been out for a while, but if it, it's worth watching, it's still on the front page. Um, this week though, we have a video on why the U.S. is so ugly. Um, later this week on Thursday, we have something called Five Things to Learn from Miss Piggy, and tomorrow we're going to have, um, a video about how the trade war with China 
is heating up to do with um, their banning of exports of um, of certain metals for green green energy. Um, I just posted a trailer for the Bob Marley biopic, which looks really good. We have some stuff on Forex. Um, I did do a whole post in reaction to ZDog MD about the three great untruths in society and his contention that the real problem with society is that we have no grit. And I'm like, mm, not so fast. So that's already up and is on the front page right now. Um, there's a great video also up about where did all the right wing media come from. And uh, last week's interview with Wade Franson about Countrywide Mortgage from the inside has been doing very well. Um, Y'all really have been enjoying enjoying that and also, um, you know, with video and, and all this type of thing. So, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of um, really great stuff on the Cameron Journal right now. So if you aren't visiting CameronJournal.com regularly, please do so. It's really important to support indie creators like myself because, um, you know, social media is changing. Um, this month I've lost a ton of traffic from, uh, Elon and what he's doing with Twitter and all this type of thing. Like most media companies, my primary discovery is through social media, but people are starting to try to find stuff that's outside of social media. So give CameronJournal.com a bookmark. You can save your bookmark to the homepage of your phone and... Um, and visit me. We have usually something every single day. Um, and if not, there's tons of back stuff to read. So just start exploring if you want to get into some of these topics. There's fun stuff. There's serious stuff. Like politics is serious. TV and movies is not. So there's lots of stuff to, to read. And now with video, we have a lot of stuff to watch, including a lot of... I just uploaded a bunch of back videos from the old talk show I did in 2014 to about 2017. So, um... That's also, uh, that's also up and available as, as well. So, like I said, lots of stuff to watch and keep you busy, and don't forget to support all your indie creators. So, with that being said, let's get to the news. Um, the first story came across the wire, uh, this morning, and it was um, a bit troubling for global food markets. Um, Russia pulls out of the Black Sea grain deal um, as it was punishment because Ukraine um, attacked the Crimean bridge. So it says here the Kremlin terminated an agreement that had allowed Ukraine to export its grain by sea despite a wartime blockade, a deal seen as essential to keeping global food prices stable. Um, it says here that Moscow, it says Russia said on Monday that it was ending an agreement that had allowed Ukraine to export its grain by sea despite Moscow's naval blockade, upending a deal that had helped keep global food prices stable and alleviate one element of the global fallout from the war. Ukraine is a major producer of grain and other foodstuffs, and the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said he was deeply disappointed by the decision. Millions of people who face hunger or are struggling, as well as consumers around the world, face a cost-of-living crisis will pay a price, he said. Today's decision by the Russian Federation will strike a blow to people in need everywhere. A Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, told journalists earlier on Monday that the agreement had been halted until Russia's demands were met. He added that the decision was not connected to the attack hours earlier on the Kursk Strait Bridge, linking Russia to occupied Crimea. Russian officials blamed Ukraine for the attack, but Kyiv has not taken responsibility. 
Uh, Russia has repeatedly complained about the agreement, which it considers one-sided in Ukraine's favor. Russia's foreign ministry on Monday issued a statement that emphasizes objections, including what it described as Ukrainian provocations and attacks against Russian civilian and military facilities in the Black Sea area, and has said the United Nations and Ukraine's Western allies had not addressed Russian demands. Only upon receipt of concrete results and not promises and assurances will Russia be ready to consider restoring the deal, the statement said. Now, here's the context of this. This wasn't necessarily out of the blue. Under the deal brokered by the West with Russia and Ukraine about grain, the deal expires and has to be reauthorized by all parties every 90 days. The deadline was today um, for the new renewal, and Russia did not want to um, renew the deal to kind of put the screws to Ukraine because grain is how there is the only way they're really making money, and the West is invested in keeping global food supply global food supplies and prices stable and so um one of the things they'd hoped to do the germans had hoped to do was to extend the reauthorization of the deal beyond every 90 days to like every six months so that there wasn't this constant you know oh are we gonna so we'll do that constant anticipation sort of thing and so russia has picked this moment to make a strategic move and um pull out of the deal and blockade grain shipments so that um so that they can get leverage to get various and sundry demands demands met so um although it doesn't say exactly what uh um what demands they're looking for it says here uh but moscow has complained that western sanctions continue to restrict the sale of its own agricultural products and sought guarantees that would facilitate its exports of grain and fertilizers in an effort to extend the deal mr guterres sent mr putin proposals last week and he said would remove hurdles affecting financial transactions through russia's agricultural bank ukraine exported 32.8 million tons of grain and other foods since the initiative began according to un data under the agreement ships are permitted to pass through shipping lanes controlled by russian naval vessels which in effect have blockaded ukraine's ports since the start of russia's full-scale invasion in 2022 the ships are inspected off the coast of istanbul on their way out and in in part to ensure they're not carrying weapons last year russia halted participation in inspections that were part of the deal only to rejoin in a matter of days so that is um geopolitics continue to affect as long as that ukraine's grain is stuck imports food global food prices will spike probably not right away but within i mean futures will spike but within 30 to 60 days as those contracts for ukrainian grain go unfulfilled um so that will mean probably higher food prices towards the end of the summer and into the fall unless they can get the grain moving again sharpish next fun story um and we're gonna get to hollywood strikers and trump and all sorts of things we have a passel of news stories this week um over the counter birth control has finally arrived for five years five not five years 50 years five decades um Women have had to trundle into the doctor every single month to get a refill for birth control. That's one of the most popular things Planned Parenthood does. Now, no more. It says here, 
The Food and Drug Administration on Thursday approved a birth control pill to be sold without a prescription for the first time in the United States, a milestone that could significantly expand access to contraception. The medication, called O-Pill, will become the first effective birth control method available over-the-counter, more effective at preventing pregnancy than condoms, spermicides, and other non-prescription methods. Experts in reproductive health said its availability could be especially useful for young women, teenagers, and those who have difficulty dealing with the time, cost, logistical hurdles involved in visiting a doctor to obtain a prescription. The pill's manufacturer, Perigo Company, based in Dublin, said O-Pill would most likely become available from stores and online retailers in the United States in early 2024. The company did not say how much the medication would cost, a key question that will help determine how many people will use the pill, but Frederic Wilgren, Perigo's Global Vice President for Women's Health, said in a statement that the company was committed to making the pill accessible and affordable to women and people of all ages. Ms. Wilgren has said that the company would have a consumer assistance program to provide the pill at no cost to some women. Today's approval marks the first time a non-prescription daily oral contraceptive will be available option for millions of people in the United States, Dr. Patrizia Cavazzoni, director of the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, said in a statement. When used as directed, daily oral contraception is safe and is expected to be more effective than currently available non-prescription contraceptive methods in preventing unintended pregnancy. We'll see how long the Republicans let that go on, because um, we know that they're coming after birth control and... That's a terrible thing, um, but it is unfortunately the place in which we find ourselves, you know, with Roe being overturned last year and the women's reproductive health being this very much three steps forward, two steps backwards. This is a great step forward. Too bad we took a step, a step backwards um, on that front, which is uh, quite, quite, quite difficult. Um, before we move on, oh, I should have talked about this already. Well, we'll go for it. Um, while we were in Ukraine, let's dash back to Ukraine for a second. Um, I found this really interesting story. Um, so, <clears throat> one of the things with the war in Ukraine is uh, there has been an issue within the Ukrainian security services of what basically a Nazi problem. A lot of the Ukrainian security services are ran and dominated by what's called the Azov Battalion, which is a fascist organization. Um, many soldiers fighting for Ukraine will have Nazi symbology on their uniforms, on their backpacks, all this type of thing. Um, there's a lot of that sort of fascistic symbology around. Um, people have pointed out online that Western media does a really good job of trying not to photograph any of it. Um, and, uh, and that, uh, and it also plays into the narrative from Vladimir Putin that he was trying to denazify Ukraine. And, uh, and it, this is something that has been, it was brought to my attention by a friend early on in the conflict. It's now starting to get mainstream press coverage. So it says here in the New York Times, uh, since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine last year, the Ukrainian government and NATO allies have posted, then quietly deleted, three seemingly innocuous photographs from their social media feeds. A soldier standing in a group, another resting in a trench, and an emergency worker posing in front of a truck. In each photograph, Ukrainians in uniform wore patches featuring symbols that were made notorious by Nazi Germany, and have since become part of the iconography of far-right hate groups. The photographs and their deletions highlight the Ukrainian military's complicated relationship with Nazi imagery, a relationship forged under both Soviet and German occupation during World War II. 
That relationship has become especially delicate because President Vladimir Putin of Russia has falsely declared Ukraine to be a Nazi state, a claim he has used to justify his illegal invasion. Ukraine has worked for years through legislation and military restructuring to contain a far-right fringe movement whose members proudly wear symbols steeped in Nazi history and espouse views hostile to leftists, LGBTQ movements, and ethnic minorities. But some members of these groups have been fighting Russia since the Kremlin illegally annexed part of the Crimea region of Ukraine in 2014 and are now part of the broader military structure. That's Azov Battalion. Some are regarded as national heroes, even, far, even, the far, even as the far right remains marginalized politically. The iconography of these groups, including a skull and crossbones patch worn by concentration camp guards and a symbol known as the Black Sun, now appears with some regularity on the uniforms and soldiers fighting on the front line, including soldiers who say the imagery symbolizes Ukrainian sovereignty and pride, not Nazism. In the short term, that threatens to reinforce Mr. Putin's propaganda and give fuel to his false claims that Ukraine must be denazified, a position that ignores the fact that Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is Jewish. More broadly, Ukraine's ambivalence about these symbols, and sometimes even its acceptance of them, risks giving new mainstream life to icons that the West has spent more than half a century trying to emulate. Um, it says in a statement, the Ukrainian Defense Ministry said that as a country that suffered greatly under German occupation, quote, we emphasize that Ukraine has categorically condemns any manifestations of Nazism. So far, the imagery has not eroded international support of the war. It has, however, left diplomats, Western journalists, and advocacy groups in a difficult position. Calling attention to the iconography risks playing into Russian propaganda. Saying nothing allows it to spread. Even Jewish groups and anti-hate organizations that have traditionally called out hateful symbols have stayed largely silent. Privately, some leaders have worried about being seen as embracing Russian propaganda talking points. So... Um, I found it interesting. This wasn't the only... This is the story I saved for the show, and it goes on, and we're not going to read the whole thing. But um, this is the story I saved for the show, but I've noticed over the last probably four or five days, this has started to come up. It started to get attention. People are starting to notice, hey, a lot of Nazi symbols over there. Um, And that has to do with... um with the Ukrainian military and all this type of thing. And that, um, I find, I find it interesting that, uh, it's finally starting to come up in, uh, like, the New York Times, because this has been a thing since the very beginning of the war, since before the war, actually. Um, and, uh, and, and this has, uh, and this is now finally coming, coming up in a real way. So it'll be interesting to see how that, manifests itself narratively within the news. So, uh, this is interesting. Um, the state of New York uh, is ordered by an appeals court to redraw its uh, U.S. House congressional map. It says here, a New, York court, a New York appeals court on Thursday ordered the state's congressional map to be redrawn, citing with Democrats in a case that could give the party a fresh chance to tilt one of the nation's most contested House battlegrounds leftward. Wading into a long-simmering legal dispute, the appellate division of the state Supreme Court in Albany said that the competitive court-drawn districts put in place for last year's midterms had only been a temporary fix. They ordered the state's bipartisan redistricting commission to promptly restart a process that would effectively give the Democrat-dominated state legislature final say over the contours of New York's 26 House seats for the remainder of the decade. In granting this petition, we return the matter to its constitutional design. Accordingly, we direct the IRC to commence its duties forthwith. Elizabeth A. Gary, the presiding justice, wrote the majority opinion, referring to the Independent Redistricting Commission. 
two members of the five-judge panel dissented. Republicans vowed to appeal, leaving a final decision to the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, just a year after it stopped an earlier attempt by Democrats to gerrymander the maps. The decision had potentially has far-reaching political implications. The current district lines were drawn by a neutral court-appointed expert last spring to maximize competition. The new map served that purpose, helping Republicans flip four seats en route to taking control of the House. If Thursday's ruling stands, both parties believe Democrats could conceivably draw maps that pass legal muster while making re-election almost impossible for incumbent Republicans like Mike Lawler, Mark Milano, Molinaro in the Hudson Valley, or Anthony D'Esposito and George Santos on Long Island and in Queens, among others. The case in New York is just one part of a national battlefield that is still being remade by court battles spawned by last year's once-a-decade redistricting process, because I can talk. New Democratic seats in New York could help offset gains Republicans are expected to make in North Carolina, where a newly conservative top court is allowing the party to replace a more neutral map, and potentially in Ohio. Democrats also won an unexpected victory at the U.S. Supreme Court in June that could net the party a handful of seats in the South. Um, one of the big stories of the 2022 midterms, and why this is important, is how, bearing in mind, Democrats control the state legislature in New York. The Democrats screwed themselves over <laughs> between 2020 and 2022 by getting mired down in this map redistricting process and having it end up in the court system and ending up with Republicans able to pick up seats in liberal New York by how the districts were drawn. And that, that, that the failure of that process kind of created the opportunity for Republicans to take back control of the House in 2022 with a handful of three seats, all most of which they won in New York. And so the reality is, if this map were to be get shifted around, then those three seats would be easily won back in 2024, and Democrat control of the House would most likely be, you know, the odds would be better. And, uh, and so, um, and so that... So to some degree, this, this mess that is now maybe finally starting to be cleaned up is the reason why Republicans have the House right now. If this had never happened, or if the state legislature had been more responsible, it's unlikely the Republicans would have won the House back in 2022. So getting this done and getting this done right is very important, but it's New York politics, so who knows it's gonna be a mess because it's new york politics um the other the really big story this week and then we're gonna get into trump and economics um so we'll also talk about a new epa thing um the uh actors and writers strike so the writers guild of america wga has been on strike for about six weeks um Oh, it says here 70 days, even longer, almost three months. Um, last week, uh, Fran Drescher, the nanny, um, and now it was now president of SAG-AFTRA, announced that the actors were also going on strike, which basically brings production Hollywood to a grinding halt. Um, so it says here that leaders of the Hollywood union SAG-AFTRA, representing 160,000 television movie actors, voted to strike on Thursday. Screenwriters have already been picketing for 70 days. Um, the Hollywood Actors Union approved a strike on Thursday for the first time in 43 years, bringing the $134 billion American movie and television business to a halt over anger about pay and fears of a tech-dominated future. 
the leaders of SAG-AFTRA, the union representing 160,000 television and movie actors, announced the strike after negotiation with studios over a new contract collapsed, with streaming services and artificial intelligence at the center of the standoff. On Friday, the actors, that was last week, will join the screenwriters, who walked off the job in May, on picket lines in New York, Los Angeles, and the dozens of other American cities where scripted shows and movies are made. Actors and screenwriters had not been on strike at the same time since 1960, when Marilyn Monroe was still starring in films and Ronald Reagan was the head of the Actors' Union. Dual strikes pit more than 170,000 workers against online studios like Disney, Universal, Sony, and Paramount, as well as tech juggernauts like Netflix, Amazon, and Apple. I am shocked by the way people that have been in, we have been in business with are treating us, Fran Drescher, the president of SAG-AFTRA, as the Actors' Union is known, said in a news conference on Thursday in Los Angeles. How far apart we are in so many things, how they plead poverty, and that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It's disgusting, and shame on them. Shaking her fists in anger, Ms. Drescher noted that the entire business model has been changed by streaming, and the artificial intelligence will soon change it more. This is a moment in history, a moment of truth, she said. At some point, you have to say, no, we're not going to take this anymore. Many of the actors' demands mirror those of the writers who belong to the Writers Guild of America. Both unions say they're trying to ensure living wages for workaday members, in particular those making movies or TV shows for streaming services. Screenwriters are afraid studios will use AI to generate scripts. Actors worry that the, that the technology could be used to create digital replicas of their likenesses, or that performances could be digitally altered without payment or approval. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which bargains on behalf of Hollywood companies, said that it had worked to reach a reasonable deal at a difficult time for an industry upended by the streaming revolution, which the pandemic sped up. The union has regrettably chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship and for countless thousands of people who depend on the industry, the Alliance said. In a news release outlined 14 areas where studios had offered historic contract improvements. Those included, according to the Alliance, an 11% pay increase in the contract's first year for background actors, stand-ins, and photo doubles, and a 76% increase in residual payments for high-budget shows that stream overseas. The Alliance added in a separate statement, We are deeply disappointed that SAG-AFTRA has decided to walk away from the negotiations. This is the union's choice, not ours. Behind the scenes, studio executives respond to Ms. Drescher's fury in varying ways, including Bob Iger, who said some really crazy stuff over the weekend, taking a break from the story. He was basically telling the actors they were complaining too much and that streaming doesn't pay that well. He even, I saw an interview him with an Aaron Ross Sorkin on CNBC where he literally said he was going to sell off all, his, all of Disney's linear TV properties that don't make money anymore. Bearing in mind, that's a bunch of, because they now own Fox, that's FX, that's TNT, ABC, uh, I mean, Disney owns a third of television. So, um, to say that that's not a thing anymore and they're going to dump it all, um, is, that's a lot. And, and his, he, and was basically not sympathetic to the writers or the actors. So, um... It says here that uh, some said they had underestimated her ability to lead the sometimes fractious actors' union, discounting her as little more than the cartoonish figure she played on The Nanny for six seasons in the 90s. Others continued to mock her, giving an Academy Award-caliber performance at the union's news conference. Though Hollywood had been bracing for a writer's strike since the beginning of the year, screenwriters have walked out eight times over the past seven decades, most recently in 2007, the actors' uncharacteristic resolve caught senior executives and producers off guard. The actors' last stage major walkout in 
1980, when the economic particulars of a still nascent boom in home video rentals and sales were a sticking point. Their latest action was part of a resurgent labor movement, particularly in California, where hotel workers, school bus drivers, and teachers and cafeteria staff have all gone on strike for some duration in recent months. The first distress signal for the studios came in early June, when roughly 65,000 members of the Actors' Union voted to authorize a strike. Almost 90% of the voters supported the authorization, a figure that nearly eclipsed the writer's margin. Still, studio negotiators went into the talks feeling optimistic. They were taken aback when they saw a list of proposals from the union. It totaled 48 pages, nearly triple the size of the list during the last negotiations in 2020, according to two people familiar with the proposals, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss confidential talks. Then, in late June, more than a thousand actors, including Meryl Streep, John Leguizamo, Jennifer Lawrence, Constance Wu, Ben Ben Stiller, signed a letter to Guild leadership declaring pointedly that we are prepared to strike. The Hollywood studios will now need to navigate a two-front labor war with no modern playbook to consult. There are many open questions, including whether the actors and writers may demand that future negotiations with the studios be conducted in tandem. One guild that will not be included, the Directors Guild of America, which ratified a contract last month. The actors' walkout will provide an immediate boon to the striking writers who've been walking picket lines for more than 70 days. The Writers Guild has yet to return to bargaining with the studios. Now those picket lines are likely to be raucous and star-studded spectacles, struggling thespians still trying to get a foothold next to A-listers with bodyguards who are paid $20 million more or more per movie role. The strikes are the latest monumental blow to an entertainment industry that has been rocked in recent years by the pandemic and sweeping technological shifts. And it goes on to Hollywood's poverty situation, which we don't care about. So that's what's going on with the Writers Guild and the SAG after strike. Um, I was listening to a podcast with um, Paul F. Tompkins and his wife, uh, Janie Haddad Tompkins, and they were in mid-June, because their podcast only comes out once a month, they were talking about how they were in solidarity with the writers, and they were uh, already doing stuff to help support that. So I imagine, since they're both in the Actors Guild, um, that they will be out, um, they'll be out picketing and striking along with every everybody else. Jane Fonda's already been on the picket line, talking to people. It's already, um, it's already been, been a thing, so... Yeah, it's it's a difficult time. I was I was telling someone the other day. I said, you know, I love this country. We're over the last three years. We have reprised every single moment of American history. We are doing labor rights. We're doing racism. We're doing, you know, the only thing I think we're not doing right now in this country is discussing prohibition. Like that's the only major American event we're not doing. We're doing racism. We're doing Reconstruction. We're practically having the Civil War. Um, in politics, like, we're just hitting all the notes, like, it is, I was telling my Nana this on, on Saturday, it is such a time of reckoning right now, it is such a huge time of the old things, the old systems, the old ideas, the, the way we did things has come under fire everywhere we look, and that means everything has changed. And that also means that we have to look and evaluate at what we're doing, how we're doing it, who's getting taken advantage of, who's getting paid, all this type of thing, and come up with new ways and new systems. And I think ultimately people have finally, finally said that we're not taking it anymore. We're tired of the low wages. We're tired of not being able to pay our bills. We're tired of instability. We're tired of being at the mercy of large corporations. Bearing in mind, media is entirely owned by three and a half companies. Like, if you put, you know, between Disney, 
Warner Discovery and um, Amazon, that's, you know, most of, that's, that's all of television and most of the, and, and most of the, of the movies. Then you throw in a Netflix and an Apple and you've got everything. That's all of media. So five companies, you know, together. And I think people are finally tired of these companies making billions and trillions of dollars um, because Amazon bought MGM and Disney has Fox and, and Discovery and Warner Media have gotten together. And so there have been all these big mergers. Um, and we're actually going to talk about uh, another big merger while we're on the subject of big corporations. Um but all these things and, and shareholders getting paid and the actors and the writers and other people in the industry are not. I feel bad for the directors who got a contract. I feel bad for the crew because those are ordinary working people, like all your grips and electricians and all that type of thing. They're unionized, but they have a contract, but nothing's going right now. So they are going to be, um, they're going to, you know, not be getting paid right now um, themselves. So it's really tough, but we're at a time in American history where people are standing up for themselves. And um, it is a good it is a good thing. So um, this story from last week, um, the a judge rejected an FTC delay of a $70 billion Microsoft Activision deal. There was a deadline they were supposed to hit today that I read this morning they're going to miss. Didn't get into that, but... Um, you might have heard that Microsoft is buying Activision Blizzard to become an even bigger video game giant. Um, the merger was approved, and it says here that Microsoft also said it was negotiating changes to the deal to satisfy objections made by a British regulator, which could allow it to complete its purchase of the video game giant as soon as this month. A federal judge on Tuesday ruled against the Federal Trade Commission's attempt to delay Microsoft's $70 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard, setting the stage for the tech giant and the video game publisher to merge as soon as this month. In a 53-page decision, Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley of U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California said that the FTC had failed to show it was likely to prove the merger would result in substantial reduction in competition that would harm consumers. She denied the FTC's request for a preliminary injunction, which would have delayed the deal's closing until after the agency could fight it in an internal court. The ruling is a significant blow to the FTC's efforts to police blockbuster tech mergers more aggressively. That strategy is spearheaded by the agency's chair, Linda Kahn, who has argued that big tech's vast influence over commerce and communications has led to anti-competitive behavior. The FTC has sued Microsoft, Meta, and Amazon, but it walked away from one of its cases against Meta and has a little to show for its efforts so far. Microsoft and Activision shared the ruling, quote, we're grateful to the court in San Francisco for this quick and thorough decision, Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, wrote on Twitter. Bobby Kotick, the chief executive of Activision, said in a statement that the merger would, quote, enable competition rather than allow entrenched market leaders to continue to dominate. Douglas Farrar, a spokesman for the FTC, said in a statement that the agency was, quote, disappointed in this outcome given the clear threat this merger poses to the open competition in cloud gaming, subscription services, and consoles. Mr. Farrar added that, quote, in the coming days we'll be announcing our next step to continue our fight to preserve competition and protect consumers. The ruling lifts the temporary ban on closing the deal just before midnight on Friday, unless the FTC obtains an extension from an appeals court. There were no indications on Tuesday that the tide may be shifting in favor of Microsoft in Britain, which presented the other major hurdle to the acquisition. Regulators there had blocked the deal, saying it would stifle competition in streaming games online. But on Tuesday, Microsoft said it was pausing its formal appeal of that ruling to negotiate a settlement. 
The regulator, the Competition and Markets Authority, said in a statement that it was open to a proposal that would address its concerns, giving Microsoft significant momentum to complete its acquisition as soon as next week. And then it goes on to the history of the deal, which is all very fascinating, but it looks like the Microsoft Activision deal is going to go through on both sides of the Atlantic. So. Um, before we get into Trump, I thought this was interesting. Um, the EPA is proposing tighter limits on lead dust in homes and child care facilities. It says here, under the proposed rules, any amount of lead dust in floors and windowsills may, would qualify as hazardous and require abatement. The Biden administration on Wednesday pr proposed to strengthen requirements for the removal of lead-based paint dust in homes and child care facilities built before 1978, an effort to eliminate exposure to lead that, would re that could require millions of property owners to pay for abatement. Lead is a neurotoxin, and exposure can damage the brain and nervous system, particularly in babies and small children. If finalized, the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that the regulation would reduce exposure to lead for as many as 500,000 young children per year. There is no safe level of lead, said Mikhail Fridhoff, the Environmental Protection Agency's Assistant Administrator of the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution. Even low levels are detrimental to children's health, and this proposal would bring us closer to eradicating lead-based paint hazards from homes and child care facilities across the U.S. once and for all. The proposed regulation would not require property owners or child care facilities to proactively test for lead dust, but if a young child showed symptoms of lead exposure through a blood test or other measure, it could trigger state and local requirements for testing. Results that confirm the presence of any level of lead dust would require property owners to pay for a cleanup, EPA officials said. It dramatically increases the number of facilities that could be required to remediate lead paint hazards. The regulation would apply to facilities regularly used by children six years old or younger, including child care centers, preschools, and kindergarten classrooms. Young children are at a particularly high risk of exposure because of activities like crawling and hand-to-mouth play. Lead poisoning can cause behavioral problems, learning disabilities, and a decline in measured intelligence levels. The federal government banned lead paint, lead bait pace for residential use in 1978, but the EPA estimates that 31 million dwellings built before the year contain lead-based paint. 3.8 million of which are home to one or more children of the age of six. Many of the buildings that would be subject to the proposed regulation are older structures located in low-income neighborhoods. So, obviously, there's going to be a whole thing about who's going to pay for this and how it's all going to work and all this type of thing. Um, but, you know, 3.8 million houses um, still have lead paint and uh, they, you know, have small children living there. So, um, overall, probably a good regulation, but it's definitely going to impact um, property owners, for sure. Um, so Trump's document trial is is heating up. Uh, Trump's lawyers seek an indefinite postponement of the document's trial. It says that the former president's legal team argued in a court filing that no trial date should be set until, quote, all substantive motions in the case were resolved, setting up an early key decision by Judge Eileen Cannon. Lawyers for former President Donald J. Trump asked a federal judge on Monday night to indefinitely postpone his trial on charges of illegally retaining classified documents after he left office, saying that the proceedings should not begin until all substantive motions in the case had been presented and decided. The written filing, submitted 30 minutes before his deadline on midnight on Tuesday, presents a significant early test for Judge Eileen Cannon, the Trump-appointed jurist who's overseeing the case. If granted, it could have the effect of pushing Mr. Trump's trial into the final stages of the presidential campaign, in which he is now the Republican frontrunner, or even past the 2024 election. While timing is important in any criminal matter, it could be hugely consequential to in Mr. Trump's case, in which he stands accused of illegally holding onto 31 classified documents after leaving the White House and obstructing the government's repeated efforts to reclaim them. 
There could be complications of the sort never before presented to a court if Mr. Trump is a candidate in the last legs of a presidential campaign and a federal criminal defendant on trial at the same time. If the trial is pushed back until after the election and Mr. Trump wins, he could try to pardon himself after taking office or have his attorney general dismiss the matter entirely. Some of the former president's advisors have been blunt in private conversations that he's looking to win the election as a solution to his legal problems, and the request for an open-ended delay to the trial of Mr. Trump and his co-defendant Walt Nata, a personal aide, presents a high-stakes question for Judge Cannon, who came into the case already under scrutiny for making decisions favorable to the former president in the early phases of the investigation. In short, what a disaster! Trump is trying to use the legal system to basically, you know, delay the case so long that it will be mired in politics and um, and he won't have to actually be accountable for it. And anybody who remembers Trump from the 80s and 90s knows this is exactly what he does. He did this with the Eastern Airlines when he bought the shell service Eastern Airlines. He did this with all of his bankruptcies. He is very good at finding lawyers to use the legal system to get him off, out of the way, all this type of thing. Very, very, really brilliant at it. Um, and it's more of the same. But I'll keep you updated as to what happens with all that and if his, um, if his gambit pays off. Um... <laughs> Economically speaking, I found this great opinion piece in Bloomberg titled Farewell Vibe Session, We Hardly Knew Ya. A massive advance in consumer sentiment seems to have ended a phenomenon in which investors constantly worried that a recession was on the horizon. <laughs> and it says, The Vibe Session, In My Feelings, An Economic Era Finally at Peace, June 30th, 2022 to July 14th, 2023. And, uh, and it says, uh, and the person writes the, the the obituary for it, and it says, The Vibe Session, age one, passed away on July 14, 2023, after the biggest one-month advance in consumer sentiment since 2006. The Vibe Session was predeceased by its cousin, The Great Resignation, and it, and it is survived by quiet quitting, rage applying, and the virtuous consumption cycle. The Vibe Session grew up in the post-COVID economy where self-sabotaging households and investors constantly worried that a recession was on the horizon, despite conditions being not awful. The world is grateful to know that the Vibe Session, sometimes thought to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, is finally at peace. Services <laughs> with the eulogy by Kyla Scanlon will be held at your local Target in the dollar spot section next to the $5 mini vending machine you contemplated buying last week. Jonathan Levin says, quote, the economy is entering a positive feedback loop. After 12 long months of being stuck in the strange, vibey limbo that made us all moody as hell, especially when the self-checkout kiosk showed up a prompt with a 20% tip, now we're feeling more upbeat about the economy, which is causing a number of helpful knock-on effects. Households spend more, businesses make more money, stocks go up, more workers get hired, which in turn makes people even more willing to whip out their credit cards to buy pink paraphernalia for what that movie <laughs> and, that mu and that must not be named. Take one look at Mattel's share price, and you'll get a better understanding of certain consumers' unrelenting itch to shop. And it's true. Mattel's stock is up to almost 22 bucks. This new era comes at a time when inflation for both producers and consumers is looking better than expected, further supporting the notion of a soft landing for the economy. In these rosier conditions, one might expect Amazon to shine, but Leticia Miranda says sales from the company's Prime Day event fell short of forecasts. This year's results expose Amazon's struggle to come out not just as a great delivery company, but as a great retailer. The Everything Stores playbook is so well known at this point that other retailers have no choice but to offer their own copycat discounts over the two-day event. 
Think about your inbox last week. How many Prime Day emails did you receive that had nothing to do with Amazon? I had offers touting Prime Pricing from Tennis Express, Fabletics, the San Francisco Chronicle, and SoulCycle. All of this extra marketing creates what Leticia says is, quote, a Black Friday-esque sales event, which ends up eating away at Amazon's bottom line. The economy might be entering a positive feedback loop, but where all that positivity gets spent is a whole other story. Um, and, uh, and then it goes on to other stuff, but it's, it, it, the economy is, uh, is doing well, mostly out of construction. Um, factory construction is the highest it's been this century. So a lot of manufacturing is coming home to the United States. So we're building a lot of factories right now. Manufacturing is coming home. And when construction jobs are up, that means more men working in the workforce and those earnings hit the greater economy. However, not everything is rosy. Um, in the other story I have, U.S. homeowners are tapping $9 trillion in real estate wealth. It says your higher mortgage rates have made cash-out refinancing less attractive and push more people to take out home equity lines of credit. It says here a couple in Austin using the money to fix up a rental house they own and help pay for their three young kids to attend Montessori school. A cop in Florida is playing the stock market. Others just like knowing there's cash available if an emergency expense pops up. Welcome to the 2023 Hellock Boom. Americans are increasingly tapping their greatest source of wealth, getting home equity lines of credit, to borrow against the value of their properties, which skyrocketed in the, in the pandemic real estate rally. Hellocks have become popular as a mortgage rate surge for record lows, making cash-out refinancing unattractive to most homeowners. Ross and Sarah Ponder bought a home in Austin in 2018 for $560,000. Four years later, after COVID migration made the Texas capital one of the hottest markets in the country, the place was worth over one million. With three kids aged five on, with three kids aged five and under, the Ponders decided in March 2022 to take out a home equity line of credit for two hundred thirty-seven thousand five hundred dollars. They had recently closed on an investment property, and the cash helped them make repairs and pay their kids' tuition. They also found peace of mind knowing that they had a little extra money around. It's important for us to have options for getting money in a crisis. Obviously, this is more of a problem if you are upper middle class and own a home with that much value and all this type of thing. But I think it's very interesting that the economy is doing so well that people are pulling equity out of their homes in order to do different things. Obviously, at the other end, inflation is really killing the working class and there is a pull there's kind of it's kind of a k-shaped thing so there's a pullback in spending on the lower end an increase in spending on the top end and that's making those two forces are kind of canceling themselves out a little bit so we're ending up with that soft landing that we were um that we were were thinking about so um that's the economy's in a really weird place right now and so we'll keep we'll keep talking about that but on the one hand the vibe session is over. On the other hand, homeowners are taking out home equity lines of credit. And then we have the black, the, well, they're not black swan because we know what's coming, gray swan of student loan payments starting up in September and wondering how that's going to affect spending, particularly for millennials and Gen Z and anyone under 45. So um, the final story I have is about the dollar. A big topic right now has been de-dollarization and what's going to happen with the dollar and reserve currency status and all this type of thing. Um, and I thought this was interesting. Um, it says here, this may have just been the week that broke the dollar. This is a Bloomberg story, and it says the dollar's worst slump since, uh, since November has a bevy of strategists and investors saying a turning point is finally at hand for the world's primary reserve currency. Um, it says here the... Uh, 
If they're right, there will be a far-reaching consequence to global economies and financial markets. The U.S. currency is teetering at the lowest level in more than a year after signs of cooling inflation bolstered bets that the Federal Reserve will soon stop hiking interest rates. Dollar bears are looking even further ahead to what they say are inevitable rate cuts, something the market consensus sees happening at some point in 2024. Our call for the dollar to enter a multi-year downtrend is partly based on the fact that the Fed's tightening cycle will morph into an easing cycle, and this will pull the dollar down even as other central banks cut as well, said Stephen Barrow, head of G10 Strategy at Standard Bank, said in a note on Friday. The Bloomberg dollar gauge was changed a little in early Asian trading Monday. It took 2% last week, the w- biggest weekly drop since five days through November 11th. It's hard to overstate the powerful ripple effects from a long-term greenback slide. It would reduce import prices for developing nations, helping ease their inflation pressures. A greenback reversal also stands to bolster currencies like the yen, which has been tumbling for months, and upend popular trading strategies tied to a weaker yen. More broadly, a softer U.S. currency would tend to boost Americans' firms' exports at the expense of their counterparts in Europe, Asia, and elsewhere. Many investors have been waiting for a downturn in the dollar for months, and the sell-off has fund managers from MNG Investments to UBS Asset Management bracing for an outperformance in the likes of the yen and emerging market economies. So, the long story long is that uh, we are going to have a whole, a whole thing with the dollar kind of retrenching and and being worth less, which means our exports will be worth more. Our imports will be worth less, and uh, and it will start to ease inflation around around the world. So, um, hello, thank you for watching. I appreciate it. I didn't see your comment till right now because I was reading the news, but thank you for watching. I always love when people come by and and watch during. Most people watch after this broadcast goes out, <laughs> but I love it when people stop by during. And so, thanks everyone for 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 watching. I I appreciate it and. Uh, and that's the hour. So we're almost at the top of the hour. So thank you all so much for watching. Um, this has been the Cameron Journal News Hour. I really appreciate it. Um, don't forget to catch me online on Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Cameron Cowan, um, on all of those things. And I will see you next week for the Cameron Journal News Hour. Don't forget to watch today's interview as well. And don't forget to like and subscribe if you're on YouTube. Um, like your Facebook page if you're on Facebook. Um, and don't forget to um, uh, follow me on TikTok for shorts. I do shorts with interviews all week long. Little shorts from the news hour that are fun to watch. Um, so make sure to uh, catch me on your favorite platform. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. of the Cameron Journal Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Visit us online at CameronJournal.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I love to talk to my followers and listeners, so please feel free to uh, get us on social media at Cameron Cowan on Twitter. And we'll see you next time on the Cameron Journal Podcast. <laughs>